Welcome to Mintcast, the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. This is episode 404, recorded on Sunday, the 22nd of January, 2023. I'm Moss, remember me? The host is a buzzkill. I'm Joe. Hey everybody, I'm Bill. First up in the news, Raspberry Pi adds an autofocus camera, Fairphone 2 hits end of life, more tenacity than ever, new Unity, Xubuntu Minimal arrives soon, Braves add bridges, Kodi 20 is released, Libvert 9.0 is out, Google gets shot down, and new features arrive in Firefox 109. In security and privacy, nothing to see here, move along. Then in our wanderings, Moss is back, Joe has fun with a pie hole, and Bill takes some OTC stuff. In our innards section, we cover what we think are the best distros and a few up-and-comers. And finally, the feedback and a couple of suggestions. In the news. First up, new autofocus camera modules for Raspberry Pi. This is from raspberrypi.com. Announced January 9th, the launch of the Raspberry Pi Camera Module 3, four different variants of Camera Module 3, starting at the familiar price of $25. They've produced camera modules with both visible light and infrared sensitive options, and with either a standard or wide field of view. And in place of the fixed focus optics of its predecessor, Camera Module 3 provides powered autofocus, allowing you to take crisp images of objects from around 5 centimeters out to infinity. There's a video video demo on the page, and the link is in the notes. Which seems cool. I mean, I always like a good camera module for the Raspberry Pi. Um, It's a good idea. I like that it's improved. Maybe one of these days I'll actually pick one up and test it out. What do you guys think? It's the one thing I don't have, the camera, for any of my Pis. All right. Fairphone 2 hits end of life after seven years of updates. This is from Ars Technica. It can be done. Android manufacturers can actually support a phone for a sizable amount of time. Fairphone has announced the end of life for the Fairphone 2, which will be March 2023. That phone was released in October 2015, so that's almost seven and a half years of updates. Fairphone is a very small Dutch company with nowhere near as many resources as Google, Samsung, BBK, and the other big tech juggernauts, yet it managed to outlast them with its support program. The whole goal of the company is sustainability with easily repairable phones, available spare parts, and long update promises. The current Fairphone 4 has a five-year hardware warranty and six years of updates, and the company's reputation says it can provide that. Sadly, the phones only ship in the UK and Europe. The Fairphone 2 only promised three to five years of updates, and it blew that out of the water. Updating the Fairphone 2 has been a huge undertaking for Fairphone. Updating Fairphone 2 has been a huge undertaking for Fairphone since it has mostly been doing it without Qualcomm's help. Usually, the Android update process has a chain of custody where Google updates the Android source code, your chip vendor takes that code and adds drivers and other binary blobs to it, and then the phone manufacturer takes the chip vendor code and makes it work on a particular device. For Qualcomm, a short supply cycle means it sells more chips, so it bowed out of the process pretty quickly, greatly complicating the updates for Fairphone. The Fairphone 2 features the Qualcomm Snapdragon 801 SoC, a chip that Qualcomm ended support for with Android 6.0. In what is probably an Android ecosystem first, that lack of chipset support didn't stop Fairphone, which teamed up with Lineage OS and today ships Android 10 on the seven-year-old device. That's not the newest OS in the world, but it passes all of Google's Android compatibility tests. 
I'm sure there are newer amateur releases in the Android ROM community, but Fairphone's Android 10 build is up to the standard of an official release, as opposed to the tell-me-what-doesn't-work standard of many amateur ROM releases. Fairphone doesn't say why support is ending in March, but if it's staying on Android 10, it was going to have to kill support sometime this year. Google only supports security patches for the last four versions of Android, so even Google will be shutting down Android 10 support soon. If you want to keep rolling with the Fairphone 2, Fairphone says you do so at your own risk since it will soon be insecure. Fairphone says it still has a limited inventory of parts available in its web store, and if you send in your retired phone before the end of March, it will give you a 50 euro credit toward a new phone. It's always nice to see a company that, you know, actually sticks to that five to six year promise of updates and actually doing it and longer. It's not like the phones wear out. I'm still quite happy with my Google Pixel 3a XL. I got a couple of S3s that are floating around that the only reason that they don't get used is because you can't update them enough to make them actually usable. It's always been an irritating thing that they, I don't know. Planned obsolescence? Yeah, I, I I have trouble getting excited about mobile devices and tablets for that very reason that they just, I mean, they, they make so many things hard on purpose and then... You've got this device that's completely... I've got a tablet upstairs right now that came with Android 4. It's a Samsung, a small, like, 7-inch tablet, and I can't... I'm going to try to see if I can get lineage on it or something like that, but you yeah, can't even... I'm pretty sure those Samsungs brick easily. I know. Yeah, i got a couple of the, the Tab 3s, and yeah. even with custom ROMs on them, it's hard to get... It's, the screen still looks beautiful, but it, it's really difficult to get them updated enough to... Yeah keep them useful the wife just wants to use it to read books on i mean uh it it doesn't even have access to the play store right now as it is and that that actually kind of surprised me so i think it yeah i think it's got android 4.4 or something like that which i mean i wouldn't want to go shopping on it but well amazon sort of forced everyone to buy new fire tablets by saying you can't buy anything in the store anymore unless you have this version of the tablet or higher it's See, it's it's irresponsible business behavior, in my opinion, to force people because not everybody's got the money. If they've got this device that still works, they might not. Not everybody can just run down to the store and. Lay well, down then you're not their customer anymore. Yeah, I if you don't have the money, then. Well, it's not it. like we have good tech recycling. That's the other That's thing true too. too. Because We're just throwing it out and adding in a landfill. Right. A lot of the places around here, if you want to recycle anything, you know, of any e-waste variety, you have to pay them. So what it, we usually ends up happening is if the people are responsible with it at all, they'll lay it out in front of the gate after hours, and then that way it still gets recycled, but they don't have to pay for it. In fact, almost all of them are doing that. So do better, folks. Well, you got all that e-waste that can't be used anymore, despite the fact that it works just fine. Yeah. And it goes, where does it go? It doesn't actually get recycled. It either goes to a landfill or yeah. it goes to, you know, the bottom of the ocean. Yep. That's well, the weird thing is we're talking Android, which is a variant of Linux. And most of the people that are using Linux, or at least a significant number of people using Linux, are doing so to keep their old hardware going. Yeah. That that's why I've always had trouble getting excited about this because yeah it's I suppose it fits into the Linux conversation in that they are utilizing a, a part of the Linux kernel or some 
open source tools. But it's a good example in my in my opinion. It's an example of companies leveraging free software in order to create a marketable profit for themselves. Pro, yeah, a profit for themselves. It had nothing to do with them wanting to be part of the uh, open source ecosystem or you know or any values in terms of contributing back to some project in most cases it, if they're contributing back it's just you know for the further the effort of the whatever project they're relying on you know so i yeah again i i just have a lot of trouble getting wound up about them okay let's move on for now we could always come back that that's always an interesting topic um, yeah oh yeah we'll never well, maybe we'll do an episode on different things you can do with um old phones I'd love to do that. I'm going to, I'll be bringing up, I'll probably talk at some point if I do actually put the effort in, which I'm sure I will, putting lineage on that tablet or, or if lineage well, is not let, available. Well, we don't have a topic for next episode. Let, let's do that for next episode. Yeah. We'll, we'll discuss what to do with old phones. Which probably have It's to a use common Windows. topic that there's so many articles on, but I, I, I'd like to talk about it again. Yeah. All right. Well, <clears throat> Two Audacity forks merge into Tenacity. This is from Londoner. He put it in here, and it's from Fostodon. This is what happened. First, it was revealed that Saustacity, yet another Audacity fork with the same purpose, was still being worked on. Someone from our community discovered it, talks ensued, and then we started merging together. Now, <clears throat> that's evidently a quote. The code repository has been moved from GitHub to Codeberg. The latest version 1.2.1 is called Saustacity, but the version 1.3 will revert to the Tenacity name. The feature freeze for 1.3 was announced today, January 11th. This is from Fostodon.org at Tenacity. It merged merged with Tenacity or Saustacity and Audacium. Do we want to test out? Well, I've been waiting for a dev to come out because you know me, I don't compile <laughs> okay somebody's got everything highlighted wrong button pressing everything i did not do most. that oh, my it bad said joe when it happened well oh, i was copying joe. i'm copying pasting it onto the website so that we can share oh, okay. it with folks but mm. uh i didn't know that would show up that way with you well guys. like i said i'm waiting for the dev i'm not a compiler type but uh, i'd be happy to use tenacity when it's ready to use there's mm. no flat pack then i assume at this point, there's uh, Codeberg. <laughs> yeah, it, there's a GitHub. Yeah. Well, I'd be interested in trying it out if it makes it to a flat pack. I suppose I could try. I mean, I've I've ran Audacity from source to see if it fixed a couple of problems, which it didn't, um, and it didn't take very long to compile. So I might try it at some point. I've been moderately interested in some of these forks. But I, I mean, I rely on Audacity to do a couple of very specific things that I don't know could be improved upon. Unless they improve the horizontal scroll bar disappearing, that would be great. <laughs> but, uh, well, we've got a lot of news. Let's move it. All right. Unity 7.7 available for testing from unityd.org. Uh, this is written by Rudra Saraswat. Greetings, Unity lovers. As you're likely aware, we... we we recently succeeded in running Unity 7.7 without Compez. Based on this effort, we've created a new variant of Unity 7, 
Presenting Unity X, superseding the previous effort with the same name, a new variant of Unity that retains all the features of Unity 7, yet offers even more customization options like using a window manager of your choice with Wayland support coming soon, replacing or even removing the panel, etc. It doesn't even require any of Ubuntu's GTK patches. The look and feel of Unity X is akin to Unity 7, but with added flexibility. You can install it from, and there's a GitLab link, until it's in the Arch slash Gentoo slash Manjaro slash Ubuntu repos. Both Unity 7 and Unity X will be shipping in the upcoming Ubuntu Unity and Manjaro Unity releases. We can't wait for you to try it out. Here are the features. Dash and Launcher. The Dash is not just visually identical to that of Unity 7.7, but also shares the same underlying code, resulting in a stable and reliable experience. You now have the added flexibility of adjusting the opacity of both the Dash and the Launcher through Unity X's configuration file. Additionally, the Launcher slash Dock has been borrowed from Unity 7, and it has been seamlessly integrated and works perfectly fine. The HUD. We have an all-new HUD based on Plotinus, and you can see it in action in this screenshot, well, in some screenshot, and it opens with Control-Shift-P. It supports a lot more apps than Unity 7's HUD, and unlike Unity 7's HUD, can be opened simultaneously in multiple apps. Unity X Control Center, the system settings app, is a fork of that of Unity 7, but supports changing most of Unity X's config. For the true tech aficionados among us, a configuration protocol has been devised as expounded upon in the subsection below, specifically tailored to the requirements of elite power users with an in-depth understanding of the intricacies of the system. I would say Rudra Sarasat goes on amazing the community uh, with each year of his life. What is he, 13 now? I actually know his birthday. I think he's still 13. This is still, to this day, the best desktop for high DPI and multiple, multiple like monitor configurations. Uh, now, I realize you can get multi-monitor working on a, a lot of disks desktops but let's say you've got one that's uh turned sideways what's the word for that uh it's sitting vertical and then you got two that are not and you got them portrait sitting landscape all, portrait yeah um unity is still the one that handles that elegantly and uh i still think some people have said that it looks dated i've heard people say i still think that it is a modern looking so do desktop. you desktop hmm? so do you yeah but uh, it, I, I think it's modern and and it's worth it's worth more love than it gets. I, I I wish it was easier to install. I want to try it on Arch, and apparently there's a unofficial repository you can install and then install a meta package. But there's no inform information in the uh, Arch wiki anymore. Well, looking at the screenshots, yeah, it does look fairly modern while still having you know a lot of the stuff you would expect. In all the places you would expect. Yep, I still. I like think it, it's but... amazing he managed to pull Compiz out of it and actually make it work better. It's interesting they put Compiz in the uh, XFCE version of Mint to this day, and I'm not real sure what the thinking is on that. But there you go. I suppose I assume since there's no name next to this next one that you want me to read it. Uh, Zubuntu 2304 will offer minimal version, which is under 700 megabytes. And this is from OMG Ubuntu. Zubuntu, one of the more minimally-minded spins, has re revealed its planning to release a new 
Zubuntu minimal image, starting with Ubuntu 2304. It's an expansion of the Zubuntu core effort started back in 2015, but with a big old rubber stamp of officialdom on it. Um, in a post to the Ubuntu developer mailing list, Steve Langasek says Zubuntu minimal parallels existing minimal install targets from the Ubuntu desktop and Ubuntu server images to provide a smaller install footprint without applications that the developers want installed as part of the uh, default experience, but which are not essential. Uh, Zubuntu Minimal will be made available as a separate download. It will still use the Ubiquity installer and won't require an active internet connection to complete installation. It will differ from the Zubuntu Minimal option in the existing image by not installing everything and then removing what's not needed for the minimal image. Now, this is interesting because it means that now you'll be able to fit the ISO on a CD-ROM. Nobody uses CDs anymore. No, but I can see... The people who use CDs are going to want this. Yeah, I can see this being useful in developing markets, maybe, where you just need something you need to... Like like if you were going to go to the... It's always nice to have something with a minimal footprint. Yeah. Especially if you're using older hardware. And I think it's great that they're only going to install what's part of the minimal installation. I've, I've complained so many times that to install a minimal distro, you have to install everything and then watch it remove the stuff that's not included in the minimal. Seems right. counterintuitive. And yeah, sometimes you just don't need everything installed because you're planning on configuring it just the way that you want. And sometimes it's best to start with a minimal install. It's almost always the case with me. But yeah, Zubuntu is a good choice for people who, uh, well, I've installed some variant of that on several people's computers that complained that they learned how to use things on a very basic level when XP was a thing. And then the new versions came along and just confused them. And Uh, XFCE, uh, Mint... Uh, well, XFCE, Cinnamon, and and Mate are all really good for for that yeah. type of person. I, yeah, I, I would think that Mate would be closer to XP than XFCE would. Well, it's just that XP Mate is it's fine, it's good. It's just a lot more um, aggressively maintained or aggressively uh, developed. Updated? Yeah, than uh, XFCE is. You can put that on somebody's machine that you know will react poorly to changes and you can count on that pretty much working the same way five years from now as it did the day you set it up you know so i mean i i would be interested to know and, and i know there's no way to do this but what is like zubuntu compared to ubuntu mate what are what's the difference in how popular they are uh well i only have really old information back when Martin Wimpress was still with Ubuntu, but at that time, Ubuntu Mate was the number two uh, downloaded distribution of Ubuntu. And that, I, I suppose that makes sense in, in uh, Ubuntu's case, because m- the Mate version, of course, had a lot more people talking about it. He had a lot more eyeballs on it. Yeah, well, uh, do you want GNOME nope. 3 or GNOME 2? Yeah, go Mate. <laughs> well, I mean, you had GTK. You got GTK 3 in uh, XFCE, um, it, it just, 
I don't know. I think you had a lot more people talking about it because it was Martin Winpress was involved in that. But you can you also there was a lot of reasons why that was so popular. You, he literally Martin made an image. literally busted his butt making yeah, that oh, thing gosh. work. Yeah. And it was awesome while he was doing it. I haven't really used it much since then. Well, he but, is still on the Monte Project. He still runs the Monte Project, yep. I believe. But no, since we were talking about it when he first, uh, well, it wasn't when he first switched over, but um, a, while, a little while after we had all done a review on the show, and I haven't used it since then, I don't think. I, I've i tried it several times just to see. I, the, the one unique thing about Mate is that, well, the Ubuntu Mate, um, it comes with several different layouts, or it's set up to give you several different choices as far as the... Uh, does um the layout paradigm where you can make it look like the old gnome 2 you can make it look like um the new style with the uh, brisk menu and all that stuff and then you had this one called mutiny which was which applied a couple of different elements to make it look and uh behave exactly like unity and it was the closest it it got closer to actual unity even than kde plasma could in terms of the way it looked and the way it behaved while using far less resources to do it you know so that was interesting at one point they they was trying to get rid of that because of the different things that it required you to install to get it working but then they brought it back because a lot of people more people than they were initially aware were actually using it and responded poorly when they, when they took it out well, I know I have stopped using Mate on Mint, and I know I reported on why I did that, but I'm not remembering it right now. I am using Cinnamon on all my Mint installs now. I think it was because you wanted to test out Cinnamon. No, it, I was actually having a problem that seemed to be related to it being Mate, that apparently they updated something and it didn't work right. And I've never said that about Mate in the past, but it started not working, and I needed something that worked. And okay. You're gonna get that in a in a desktop that is so, like I said, is so uh, aggressively uh, developed. Well, the development is all going on the Ubuntu Mate side, you know. So whether or not things work on every other distribution, you know, that's eh, maybe not at first. All right. Take Let's it, Joe. Brave browser ad support for Tor bridges. This is from Brave.com. The Brave browser has had support for private browsing with Tor since 2018 as a way to give our users a way to protect their network privacy. One request we have recently started to receive with increased frequency is support for Tor bridges. Bridges are a way for users to access the Tor network even when their government is blocking connections to the network. Starting with Brave 1.44, Users in affected countries have had an easy way to circumvent these restrictions from the settings page. Once the desired bridge configuration is selected, new private windows with Tor will only attempt to connect to the Tor network via the specified bridge. More details can be found in the official documentation. In addition to enabling users to connect to bridges and relays graciously offered by volunteers in the Tor community, Brave will continue to contribute to increasing network capacity. Besides operating the relays we have been running since we launched private, browse, private windows with Tor, we are now making it easy for our users to share their internet connections with users in censored countries. Starting in version 1.47, Brave will enable users to install and turn on the Snowflake extension in a single click. We, Brave, 
are proud to be a member of the Tor project and are happy to be able to provide ways for our users to access the information they are looking for. Many of our websites, including Brave Search, are available natively on the Tor network via Onion addresses. Note that if your personal safety depends on remaining anonymous, you should use the Tor browser instead. And yeah, Tor's awesome. It may be a little bit slow. You might have better luck with a VPN, but I understand that a lot of your commercial VPNs can also be tracked in certain countries. Not necessarily tracked, but blocked because the IP addresses are known. Yeah, this is mostly for those certain countries because some people just can't get access to information. Right. You can't get access to a VPN because they're they're blocked. So use Tor. They they're they're two completely different use cases, really. No, honestly. From VPNs versus Tor network? Yeah, because you're with Tor you're doing more than encrypting the traffic. You're bouncing off of random servers so there's no you couldn't just find out what somebody if you was going to go and do what they or see what they were up to uh of course this is a this is a wild oversimplification but you couldn't just go and track down whatever server that vpn service uh he was using was bouncing its traffic off of with tor i mean everything is anonymized right down to the ip addresses of the of the nodes you know you're right and then again, you're also slightly incorrect there because it is possible for a Tor node to be owned. So yeah. if one of those Tor nodes that you're on and it gets bounced around, I understand that. But if one of those Tor nodes that it gets bounced around to is owned, then all the traffic going through it is monitored. At that so point, VP- it's, yeah, VPN may be on top of Tor. I don't know. Yeah, a VPN and Tor would yeah. probably be your best bet. But then again, that provides you two endpoints where it's potential for, you know, the data to be owned. One at the VPN, one on all those Tor nodes. Yep. Watch what you do, folks. Moving along. Cody 20 released with AV1 and Pipewire support. This is from 9to5Linux. The Kodi 20 Nexus has been released today, January 15th, as the latest stable update of this free open source and cross-platform home theater software for GNU slash Linux, Android, Raspberry Pi, iOS, tvOS, macOS, and Windows platforms. Kodi 20 Nexus is a massive update that comes nearly two years after Kodi 19 Matrix to introduce major and exciting new features like support for the Pipewire media server, AV1 hardware decoding on Linux via a via VA API, Video Acceleration API, AV1 codec support for input stream, as well as built-in Steam Deck controller support. Also new is initial support for the NFS version 4, Network File System Protocol, WS Discovery, SMB Discovery for Unix platforms, Linux, Android, and Apple, AV1 hardware decoding on Android, independent volume settings for GUI sounds, new color picker window dialog, new media flags for HDR videos, and the ability to add video HDR type information to a video list item. I don't have to know what that means. I just have to read it. (laughs) On top of that, Kodi 20 brings support for mounting optical media by default on Linux, native support for Apple M1, including native windowing and input handling, ACES slash Hable tone mapping, support, and more bicubic shaders for GLES on Linux, as well as support for read-only recordings. 
Also for Linux users, there's the ability to set HDR output when using the generic buffer management API, which provides a mechanism for allocating buffers for graphics rendering tied to the Mesa graphics stack. Of course, there are also numerous improvements like support for specifying providers for PVR channels and recordings, better support for multi-PVR add-on scenarios, better Siri remote handling on iOS and tvOS, as well as better subtitle support for the ASS slash SSA, TX, 3G, SAMI, and WebVTT formats. More details at the link. Hmm. Uh, Cody, I boy, I've been using Cody since... It was XBMC, and I've always, I've always been a fan. I, it, it was. I found it obtuse, you know, to set up, and there, you know, it had its limitations. And I've since left it behind in favor of uh, Jellyfin. Now I've used it off and on, and you can definitely see that a lot of other things were heavily influenced by XBMC. Yeah. But um, yeah, I've also kind of left it behind because I'm not dedicating an entire system to just no media. However, one thing I am going to try is apparently there is a Jellyfin plugin for Cody, which would be useful because, you know, Jellyfin's great and all, but uh, as far as like getting a Raspberry Pi and using that as a set-top box, there's no yeah. there's no client to make that work correctly. Well, um, I know Moss uses Cody on a Pi, but... Uh, Moss does I, not use Cody. Moss lost Cody access when he lost access to the plugins. Ah, okay. But it would be interesting to try and see, and I think that's going to be my next Pi project, is to put LibreELEC on a Pi and then set up Cody, and instead of doing all the work to add all the Samba shares, which I don't use anymore, uh, put the... Uh, put the uh, Fuse mounts? Well... No, because there's there's jellyfin. a straight Jellyfin uh, add-on now, and then see if that is a good, reliable method for just getting a set-top box and then adding what I need to it. Because the one, see, the biggest thing about Cody was that you had to do all the metadata scraping client-side, so it mattered how powerful of a device was running Cody. And I've got all these fire sticks and... and uh, fire TVs in the house, and in order to get Cody on those, it had to be sideloaded, which was a, which was just an ordeal every single time they came up with an update. Jellyfin is available from their app store, and all of the metadata scraping and even the uh, transcoding is done server side. So the only thing the client has to do is render the video. But again, it would be interesting to see how well Cody handles that through their plugin system. I used to have it installed on my on my Android phone, and, and I used it on occasion, but I didn't use it enough to like leave it installed. I guess because I just checked, and it's not there anymore. I mean, it's it always was one thing that I thought was cool about it is you could have like XFCE for some people they struggle with the uh, screen tearing and that watching videos. You put Cody on this thing, and it just plays the videos beautifully. Um, every single time. So, I mean, as an option, if you're the kind of person that's just got a lot of locally saved media on a machine and you want a good integrated way to play it, you know, it's it's great for that. It almost instantly got better than Windows Media Center. Yes, that used to be a thing. Bill, I think you're up on this next one. Okay, yeah. It's a short I one. 
I can see why. Libvert 9.0 released from Pharonix. Libvert 9.0 was released on Monday, uh, that's January 16th, as the newest version of this Linux virtualization API. This virtualization API, backed by Red Hat, continues to support a wide range of hypervisors, and with the version 9.0 release, has added additional functionality. Libvert 9.0 adds support for external snapshots deletion with QEMU using the existing API. Uh, Libvert 9.0 with QEMU now supports PASST as plug a simple socket transport for connection, connecting an emulated network device to the host's network. QEMU external backend support for SWTPM as a software trusted platform module support for passing file descriptors rather than passing files for the QEMU disk and other additions. Libvert 9.0 also now prefers PNGs over PPM images for domain screenshots with QEMU support for setting multiple nodes for the preferred NUMA policy when running on recent versions of the Linux kernel and libnuma and various bug fixes. So to explain what some of this means, um, it's always, okay, I'll start from towards the back. The, uh, uh, the new TPM support, the SWTPM support, that's a module you had to enable in order to install Windows 11 on it so that it had some sort of uh, emulated pathway to the TPM module that's on your machine. So if you've got a machine that's capable of running Windows 11, then you can you can run it in a KVM through Libvirt, and it works relatively well. I've got it running on two machines. Um, there's a few jumping through hoops you have to do, but it for somebody that needs Windows for the odd occasional task, it works rel- relatively well for that. Um, the external snapshot deletion is also useful for people that want to like stop a machine right in the middle of what it's doing without shutting it down and then be able to go right back to that place just like a game emulator basically where you can stop it right where it's at and then go to where it is and it and it works really really well red hat with with libvert has really created um a virtualization api that gets a virtual machine about as close to the bare metal as uh, you could pop that, which is kind of cool, I think, because it it's good for all of the stuff you need to do on Windows, and then it's also good for trying out new Linux distributions as well. Am I the only one that pronounces LIB as LIB, since it is a library? That is correct. You are the only one. Everyone else. Well, no that. one else has corrected me, and I've been doing it on uh, Full Circle Weekly because News for as long you're as. You're still the only one. There's no need to correct people in this ecosystem. It's all about... Look, everybody respects you, Moss, because you're... What's the word I'm looking for? Old. I don't want to say the word you're looking for. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's still a library, and if they can spend hours uh, arguing over whether it's GIF or JIF... No, uh, we do that. I've heard (laughs) the developers come on... No, no, no. the only real argument we have, because uh, GIF or GIF, you know, I, I believe the uh, the developer for that came out and said that it was um it was, it was GIF, but um it's not a graphics library. It's- <laughs> yeah. But um, the only real one is Damon versus Demon. Yeah. Well, well that's just Leo. <laughs> Leo but- being wrong. 
there's other shows that really, really enjoy this sort of culture we have of mispronouncing things because for a very long time, these words were only really written down and never spoken in public, you know, and well, it's, it's like, it's like mate versus mate. There's a lot of people that still say mate because yeah. that's the word. They're they wrong. <laughs> well, yeah, they're wrong. Don't, I understand that, but, but, but the point is, I mean, a lot of this is born out of not create, because if you make it one definite thing and then somebody's got a project out there that they've copyrighted somehow that nobody ever knew about, then if it's if you're if you call it one thing and it's specifically this and we've decided that that's what it is, then you can get sued for copyright infringements. That's that's where a lot of this is no almost certainly born out of is that and that's also why we have some of these unreadable, unspeakable names for software projects that just <laughs> don't seem to make any sense the, the way they're spelled. And that's it's all just in an effort to never get sued, you know. Uh, and that that is what it is. And then, of course, we've made this culture of, you know, fun ways of saying things. And I've even heard, I've heard developers of these projects, they'll go on a, they'll go on a podcast that I won't name, and they say it right until they hear the one of the uh, announcers on that podcast say it wrong, and then they start saying it wrong. Like there's, it's it's a disease that is no, they easily. Just match, well, we we do they have match one the particular they're working with. Yeah. We do have one particular person over at Jupiter who refuses to say things right, no matter what. Okay, I wasn't going to go there, but <laughs> he does enjoy. He, he, I mean, partly it. I imagine it got started just because some people have a little trouble saying certain words, you know. But then it became this thing where. We start arguing about simple things like gifts, and gifts should be obvious, but but the fact that it's not, and <laughs> these are not unintelligent people that are that are making these mistakes. You know, these are <laughs> these are intelligent, uh, intelligent, you know, thoughtful people, and the fact that it does get mispronounced is is a, <laughs> I think it's a bit entertaining, but some people get some people get downright ignorant over that kind of thing. That always makes me smile. Yeah. Just, well, you know, it gives me fuel. <laughs> Joe, why don't you go beat up Google for us? Okay. Yeah. Google Topics API for targeted ads gets shot down. Again, Google's plan to reinvent ad targeting for the postponed post-cookie era has again been complicated by privacy concerns. After the Chocolate Factory's Federated Learning of Cohorts, FLOC, a proposal for delivering interest-based ads in a privacy-preserving way turned out to have less privacy than the package's ingredient list suggested. The ad biz reworked the technology and rebranded it Topics. The Topics API, one of a number of ostensibly privacy-protecting technologies being developed under the Privacy Sandbox brand, has been sold as a way for web browsers to watch what people do online in a non-creepy way. It's intended as a mechanism to determine and report people's interests, such as hiking or fitness, to, to pick two innocuous examples, without revealing people's identities to website operators and advertisers. Third-party cookies, beloved by advertisers as a way to track people online, are on their way out because they, they are a privacy disaster. Originally, this was supposed to have happened by the end of 2022, but cookies, identifiers, servers, deposit in client browsers, 
keep getting reprieves in the absence of any viable replacement. And the process has become slower still due to the intervention of regulators, roused by complaints from Google's ad industry rivals that privacy sandbox tech might actually enable privacy and leave ad firms starved of precious data. In the year since January 2022, when topics displaced Flock, various technical types have been kicking the tires of topics and probing Google's claims about the technology. Last week, the Technical Architecture Group of the World Wide Web Consortium, the web's technical body, weighed in with its assessment of the topics API. The group's findings are not good news for Google. In a post to the Topics Code repository, TAG member from Digital Bazaar, Amy Guy, said the Topics API intended to facilitate the sharing of interest data with third parties while preserving privacy does not achieve its goals. The Topics API, as proposed, puts the browser in a position of sharing information about the user derived from their browsing history with any site that can call the API, explained Guy. This is done in such a way that the user has no fine-grained control over what is revealed and in what context or to which parties. It also seems likely that a user would struggle to understand what is even happening. Data is gathered and sent behind the scenes quite opaquely. This goes against the principle of enhancing the user's control, and we believe it is not appropriate behavior for any software purporting to be an agent of a web user. And it's interesting that it got postponed again. Uh, that, that, that part is my opinion. Um, Cookie. Yeah, I, I I don't even know what to say about this. I'm not surprised it got postponed again because if it actually did what it was supposed to, then the um, advertisers wouldn't like it. And if it you know didn't do what it's supposed to, then the um, World Wide Web Consortium wouldn't like it. So I don't know if it's ever going to come in, and if it does, how well it will work because. Well, you're getting a lot of this for free, and when you're getting it for free, that means, you know, you're the product, and they want as much information on you as possible, so you'll buy the next blingy-blingy. It, uh, I don't know. I think people don't care about this kind of stuff as much as they perhaps should. But there's enough people that actually do. Yeah, to, well, to stop them from rushing something to the marketplace, yeah. Well, you'll, I understand what you're saying there, Bill. You'll find a lot of people that say that, you know, they have nothing to, to hide, so they don't care what gets sent out there. But it's not about what you have to hide. It's about what you have to protect. Right. And Google has made some choices in, the, in recent days that has made it clear, in my mind at least, you know, why you should care about these things. And it's, and it's all about how... The things you do and the things that you type in a browser, the things you take pictures of and then back up to their free, if you will, cloud service, you know, can be misinterpreted by people who feel it's incumbent upon them to take actions on things based on very, very vague idea sets. So... My my only thing, and I and I talk to normal people all the time, and I ask them now, you back up, and a lot of people don't even know their photos. You know normal people? Yeah, I don't know if you know any of these. Where or not, are those? But they're they're walking around out. You got to get well. They're easier to find around here. I'll tell you that. What um, outside? That's uh, not going to happen. <laughs> I have to go outside to go to work. What is this but, outside of which you speak? Look, when I go to work, you know who's there? More nerds. Yeah. 
I have to, I, I guess there's people like me out there, but most of the time I feel like a Martian in, in my line of work and the things I talk about. But it also offers the unique perspective of a normal person in these what's, conversations. What's really bad is the nerds consider me a nerd because I do this Linux well, stuff. Well, I don't think, what you're talking about is people that know a lot about consumer electronics you know things that you can go to best buy and then take home and set up and then because they know how to no, use those they're, things, they're, they're, they're nerds. nerds because they know thing like things like python and batch oh. scripting but they don't actually know linux yeah well in any case the normal people that don't think about where the pictures go when they take the, when they take the picture i've asked these people now if you had the choice between using this thing for free and throwing Google ten fifteen dollars a month, and them not doing anything with your data. No, I am. I would be willing to pay ten or fifteen bucks a month. I'd be willing to pay yeah. like thirty, forty bucks a month for a service like that. The problem is, is that I wouldn't actually trust the company that I was paying to <laughs> not, not be bit. using my data because anyway. they have they have got paid tiers now for these things, and I still don't know whether. You know, you get any uh, reliable measure of expectation of privacy with that kind of thing. Uh, I don't even know if they consider that the benefit of having a paid tier. I think they sell their paid tiers based on the increased capacity and things like that. You know, well, you'd need to talk to Firecat about that. He's been using their top paid tier. Uh, his website moved almost a petabyte of data this last year. Yeah. But does that mean that he's getting any more privacy than somebody who's paying? Well, he he feels private. I've talked to him about it. He feels like they're not doing anything with his data. Um, well, I don't know. know. Well, let, let's move on. Sure, uh, why not? Please. Uh, Firefox 109, new features, updates, and fixes from Mozilla.org. The major changes, Manifest version 3, MV3 extension support is now enabled by default. MV2 remains enabled slash supported. This major update also ushers in an exciting user interface change in the form of the new extensions button. The arbitrary code guard exploit protection has been enabled in the media playback utility processes, improving security for Windows users. We don't know any of those. The native HTML date picker for date and date time inputs can now be used with a keyboard alone, improving its accessibility for screen reader users. Users with limited mobility can also now use common keyboard shortcuts to navigate to navigate the calendar grid and month selection spinners. Effective on January 16th, colorways will no longer be in Firefox. Users will still be able to access saved and active colorways from the add-ons and themes menu option. The recently closed section of Firefox View now equips users with the ability to manually close slash remove URL links from the list. And the empty state messages and graphics components surfaced in Firefox View for the tab pickup and recently closed sections have been updated for improved user experience. I was worried about colorways. Why would they put something in, say we're going to end this in X number of months, and then just end it? Why why bother adding it? There got it's gotta take a lot of work Did they to put say in that? something like that. Yeah. I mean they, what a flash in the pan. I don't know. That is strange. I remember when they announced it, they said it would be ending uh, two versions from then. But was it u being used to like 
gather some kind of information to make something else in the future or was it i think it was just a bone that they threw to users who wanted more colorful layouts of firefox and then said well you can use it and you can keep your settings after you use it but it's not going to be here after this time we're not going to support it well that's just stupid unless they offer it as an official add-on or release it to the community yeah oh well firefox is another or mozilla is another company that we love dearly we we love that they exist i give them money because they make firefox but they they make some strange or what well, seem they to keep, be strange decisions they keep making new choices and they're trying to be innovative and, and innovative to, yes innovative Go ahead. innovative i like that and and innovative and, innovative Go ahead, Jeff. And, and provide improvements so that people actually come back to Firefox. Yeah. But, yeah, nobody really has so far, which is why they keep trying crazy crap. Well, guys, that's the news. That's a lot of news. A lot of news. And security and privacy, you get nothing! <laughs> So let's move to our bi-weekly wanderings. Well, for me, as anyone who listened to episode 402 knew, I spent the weekend of January 6th in Atlanta at my annual Filk convention, Gafilk. Apparently, those who listened did not include Bill or Joe, as I got some rather Woo-hoo. frantic messages as to whether I would be on the show. It was great to see all my no, friends no, no, again. No, 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 three... not for me. Not for no. me. You got messages from me asking if you were still alive, and that was the extent of it. Uh-huh. On behalf of Joe, I, I went ahead and sent messages to see how you were doing, because I was worried about you, Moss. I, yeah, well... You just I, you didn't I, say anything to I anybody. said you in the meetings, up, I said why I wasn't going to the meetings, I, I, up I've been prefacing it for two months. Prefacing it? You've been prefacing it? <laughs> yes. What an innovative w- w- word. <laughs> Let me continue, please. <laughs> sure, why not? It was great to see all my friends again after three years of COVID, and I had a great time. I sold a few more CDs, but not many. I'm still having some fun times, closed sarcasm font, with the T540P, this time being it didn't update a file and couldn't complete installing the latest kernel. I had to completely reinstall Mint and Bodhi on SDA 3 and 4. That took about five hours out of time I was supposed to be spending with my wife. Let me tell you, she was very appreciative of that. I then had Big Linux come up with a kernel panic and Q4OS have its own problems. In the end, I removed the Samsung SSD, which was primary, and made the Silicon Power SSD primary, since it's twice the size. I reinstalled the DVD drive and installed just Big Linux on the uh, Silicon Power SSD. It looks like I'll be keeping this machine for just testing only. I think it's gotten too old to be reliable to have five or six distros on. I still have the Samsung drive intact. I think what I'm going to do, I'm, I've got a new silicon power SSD of that size that I was going to give to my wife since she was still running a very old, very weak SSD as her backup. Uh, and I think I'm going to take the Samsung and clone it to the silicon power and then give her the Samsung for her new drive and clone her old drive onto that. Onto that. Okay, that's too much to talk about my tongue's stopping to work here school is back in although every time someone spots a snowflake they close the schools 
I did get some work finally on Friday. That was my first day of the year. I don't remember whether I mentioned the two T. I don't remember whether I mentioned the new T580 for me and T590 for my wife in episode 402, but I have them and they're working. I cleared my T560 and have prepared it for sale and haven't posted it anywhere yet. Which means I have three machines and a dock for sale, one of which will need to be local only as it weighs too much to ship. That would be my HP Z800 workstation. We are working on DistroHoppers Digest episode 40, quite a milestone. We have exceeded expectations once again in terms of listenership, and we have a new host for our podcast distribution. Google killed off yet another of its services, FeedBurner, so we have moved to Red Circle. We have offers to redo the website as well and are thinking about it. I've been letting itsmoss.com pretty much lay fallow. We have only had a few new articles in 2022, but we hope to pick it up again in 2023. I completed my first full calendar year in Full Circle Weekly News, and I'm getting some good feedback. Back on itsmoss.com, I did uh, post an article uh, detailing the time and effort it took to update from Mint 20.3 to 21.1. How are you liking Red Circle? I am not understanding Red Circle at this time. Dale is doing the work. Okay. Dale and, and Tony. It's relatively simple. I mean, it's what I'm using for the two shows that I've started. The longer I'm on this show, the less I have actually to do with running it. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a different way of handling. Th- th- this show is kind of unique in that the... Well, with with my two other shows, Red Circle is where I upload the media to, and then they just handle all the RSS and everything automatically. And I really... It's a minimal set of things I have to do. Well, with Mintcast, you know, we've got our stuff up on archive.org, and then we've got a WordPress, WordPress plugin on our website handling the RSS. So that mm-hmm. that is another option to avoid, you know, having to pay for a service, you know, but it, but it requires a little bit more manual work, and you don't get the benefit of the metrics, the real-time metrics that you get with Red Circle. I'm pretty sure that Dale basically did what you did. Yeah. Followed your example. Um, We have noticed that our download statistics are way down. That could be because of the way they report downloads as opposed to the way Archive gets around to reporting them. Uh, We've never been really satisfied that Archive was actually giving us real numbers. Yeah. But it's all right. We we continue to do the When your numbers fluctuate down on Archive... By like 500 or 600, then yeah, it's hard to you know trust what they're saying. Yeah, well, Mintcast has had numbers as high as six or eight thousand per episode, and then there's been some episodes that are down around fifteen, sixteen hundred. Yeah. Well, that's it for me. What about you, Joe? Well, I had some fun. Uh, my pie hole had stopped working a while ago, and I finally got around to fixing it. Um, at first, I tried to simply like force an update in the, in, on the whole thing. By SSHing into it and doing an update manually, you know, sudo apt um, apt update and sudo apt um, upgrade, and uh, that seemed to work. But then um, I set my router to use it as the DNS, and suddenly I had no internet. 
this was a common theme throughout the entire time that I was working on it. Um, I also then pulled out a new micro SD card and started from the very beginning with a fresh headless, headless Raspbian install, well, Raspberry Pi OS, excuse me. I was able to set up all the files to get it connected to the network headless and to turn on SSH. Um, and then I was able to install PyHole and view the dashboard. But once again, when I would point the router to the Pi DNS, then my network would have no internet connection. The local networking still worked, but nothing else. Uh, it was very frustrating for my family with uh, the network bouncing up and down like that, but it turns out the issue was not the Pi Hole or any of the setup on that because I attempted to change a lot of the settings in there and nothing helped. The issue turned out to be on the router side. Um, evidently, there were two locations with DNS settings, one for WAN and one for LAN. Um, I was making changes on the WAN side, and I should have been making the adjustment on the LAN side. I guess that's understandable, but um, after all the attempted changes to the routing table and the global DNS that the Pi was using, I think that I have everything set up the way that I want, and it is working the way that I expect. Um... <clears throat> I do wonder what else I can do with that Pi Zero at the same time. Pi Hole is not a very resource intensive thing, and I think I could do more with that Pi. But then again, I don't want it doing too many things because that adds more chances for the whole thing to break down. Plus, I still have like three Pi Zeros that I can be using for other things, plus a Pi Four and a Pi Three and even a Pi One. So I am looking for other projects that would be good for that. Um, I'm thinking it might be fun to move my audio bookshelf instance to a Pi Zero, but uh, that would also require me to set up a large external hard drive for it. Um, <clears throat> I also got a low-cost portable router because I couldn't find any of the ones that I already have for some reason. Um, I was able to get it set up in my garage so that I could have a, a closer Wi-Fi connection for a couple of my devices that were having issues connecting to the network that's in the other room. Uh, really cleaned up a lot of the issues that I was having with my 1GX, my little mini laptop. Now, I'm still playing around with PSPs for a while yet, but with the new methods to custom ROM, the PS Vita, and the things that you can do with it, I would really like to get one of them one, one of these days. The price is still a bit high for them, even the broken ones. And I kind of understand the device, the device was ahead of its time, and for how much it can play when rooted, it still seems, sorry, um... I just jumped, like, from the part I was reading to some random part of page somewhere. I don't know what happened. Okay, uh, the price still seems a bit high, even for the broken ones, and I kind of understand that the device was ahead of its time, and for how much it can play when rooted, it still seems like a... It's very competitive to modern mid-range handhelds. And with the PS Network shutting down for them, e either the price will skyrocket as more people use them for emulation, or the price will drop as people move away from them. Uh, I need less expensive hobbies. But um, I, I do want to eventually get the Vita, custom ROM it, or whatever it's called, root it so that you can play whatever you want to on it and use it as an emulation system. And then I also have a PS3 that I would like to see if I can um, stream from. Also, next week, my 20th wedding anniversary is coming up. And I do want to do something for nice nice for that but it kind of depends on what my wife wants lots of jewelry and the usual all the things she says she does not want indeed yeah well bill what have you been up to oh gee whiz 
So last week, Leo Norbert and I recorded our first episode of Linux OTC, and I think that went well. It's linked in the show notes to the website, by the way. Uh, the recording went on for over an hour and 42 minutes, and incidentally, it was the reason I didn't make Roundtable. Um, but the conversation was engaging and interesting from start to finish. Uh, originally, I intended to focus that particular episode on introductions, maybe some origin stories, and even predictions, but the conversation quickly took on a life of its own, um, meaning that it just it just spun off in different directions. I have no regrets, as this was my original intent with regards to the format of the show. Um, I was surprised when Friday night on the way back from Tennessee... I received a notification on the WordPress app on my phone indicating a comment on the website for episode one. Uh, at first, I imagined it would take some time before anyone even knew we existed. Uh, but after checking the metrics on Red Circle, I was delighted to see over 130 downloads. Not bad for a debut, I think, if I do say so myself. Uh, right now, episodes drop at midnight U.S. Eastern Time on the Sundays opposite those which Mintcast streams. I'm excited for the future of the show and look forward to any input we can get from the community. Um, head over to linuxotc.org for all the info you need. Right now, we have a very small uh, social networking footprint, which is to say that we've got an email address and we've got a Discord channel. Um, I think there's a grand total of three of us on that Discord at this moment. I could be wrong, um, but, uh, you know, th these are things that will grow organically, I think. Um, but, yeah, that's been – that's happening. So this past week I decided to see what the state of Wayland on Plasma is, is and how well I can get it to work on my Omen. I've got uh, – I don't know the – I don't remember the model number – but it's an HP Omen laptop with uh, the NVIDIA Optimus chipset. For those of you that don't know what that is, it's some of these laptops that ship with an NVIDIA card also have an SOC video card uh, installed so as to not use more battery than absolutely necessary. And support for those on Linux has been kind of, I mean, it's, been, it's there, but it ain't, you know, uh, or it wasn't. Uh, for several years now, I've been using a, product, a project called Optimus Manager to switch back and forth between the NVIDIA graphics card and the integrated Intel SoC. Um, this only worked on Xorg, so I didn't spend a lot of time paying attention to how things were going on uh, Wayland. The thing about that method is that you... You can only choose one or the other. You can't be like running your Intel and then decide you want to, or at least I could never get it to work, decide, okay, I want to open Steam using the NVIDIA card, but then the minute that closes, go back to editing my documents and all that with the integrated. Um, you had to choose one or the other, and if you wanted to switch it, you had to log out and log back in. You know? So that's that's kind of a no-go for me. Um and the biggest thing is it only worked on Xorg. Um, about a year ago, I switched back to Xorg and started using that again. I was on Wayland and I thought things were working, but they really weren't. It was using the uh, it was using the Intel card and telling me that it was the the Nvidia card. Um, but this 
this past week I decided to give it a shot and I, I booted it up and logged into the Wayland session, uh, got rid of Optimus manager and disabled the uh, service and all that and found out right away that the Wayland experience has been where all of the improvement has gone because immediately everything... See, the other problem is it's also got a 4K screen and 4K is a bit of a, in my opinion, a gimmick, or it was my opinion until this, uh, because even on Plasma, you had this, some things would uh, scale correctly, some things would not, and some applications just didn't behave well at all while being scaled. Well, that was under X. When I switched to uh, Wayland, Wayland seemed to understand how to deal with that screen better than Xorg did. In fact, when I booted it up, everything looked great, and I go to the display settings to see if you know if if it was applying any kind of scaling, which it was. It was showing everything at two hundred percent. And then on Xorg, you would click on the uh, resolution settings, and you had a choice between like a dozen different settings. Well, on Wayland, I went to the uh, resolution settings, and it said, "Nope, your this thing only supports four K. Uh, if you want to change that, then change the scaling." You know, and of course, the scaling applied in real time and worked great. And I thought, man, that's really something. But what about Optimus? What about the uh, NVIDIA card? Well, there's apparently the uh, officially supported method is to use a thing called Optimus or Prime Prime Run is the is the command you would use. You just append Prime Run to the command that would open whatever piece of software you wanted to use the NVIDIA card, and then that piece of software would run with the uh, GPU, the NVIDIA GPU, and by golly, it worked great. So I could, it starts and it runs with the Intel graphics, and then you append Prime Run, and then Steam, blah, 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 whatever. It's a little bit of a pain in the butt because you got to go into your menu options. There's not an easy, like, gooey way of picking things that you want to start with not that i'm aware of anyway there might be something out there but uh no oh i'm I'm just going to interject here because yeah um it used to be like a real real pain to set up the nvidia drivers if Mm -hmm. you had hybrid graphics used to be but um because i had entire episodes of this show where we went through and i was trying to set up the um hybrid drive drivers for this laptop right here which has a nvidia n60m in it and the whole process of using like i think it was called bumblebee or something like that to to get it set up but that was a long time ago um now like basically i install the nvidia drivers and it automatically goes between the intel and, and and the uh, NVIDIA, and I can see that in the NVIDIA X server settings, and this is of course through Xorg. I don't have Wayland set up, so and, and yeah, it is a really simple setup, and I can see which applications are, or I could formally see. I, I'd have to go through and find it again. Um, see which applications are using uh intel and which ones are using nvidia and i think i can even force use 
or, or tell specific applications to use the NVIDIA as opposed to the Intel. Yeah, and then I can the also... Prime run does. It'll, it forces it. Yeah, I can also, like... Um, change things to either like nvidia performance mode which will bias using the nvidia and since i'm not on battery that's perfectly fine or i can put it on on demand mode or i can put it into power saving mode all i can say is that somebody at nvidia has been watching too much transformers yeah you keep talking optimus prime and joe just mentioned bumblebee and i'm going come on now where, where did the Decepticons come into this? I think it was all born out of the them using the Optimus naming convention, and then all of the projects kind of spun off of that in terms of naming. Uh, but I was happy with the performance I was getting, and OBS Studio was working with uh, Wayland now too, which is which was kind of a reason. I remember my very first episode of Metcast, I was using that machine and I was trying to get OBS to work because I was going to do the streaming, and I wasn't able to capture a, a uh, screen. I wasn't able to capture the Discord screen. Um, well, now that works. So that was, and I, and I, oh, that was on Arch too, by the way. I don't know if I mentioned that or not. Uh, yeah, I was so satisfied with the project uh, or the progress of Wayland on the Nvidia Optimus uh, enabled machine. I decided to try my luck and see how well gaming has progressed in the last year. And yeah, that's how long it's been since I've done any gaming. Um, so I went for broke, installed Steam, and I downloaded Skyrim and let her rip. Skyrim was the one game that was giving me problems even after even after the uh, Steam Deck was announced. I oh, was yeah. still having a little bit of trouble with the sound uh, just because of the way it splits up the tracks. Well, downloaded that, let her rip, and under Wayland... Uh, I added prime run to the command. Now you're saying I don't need to do that. It'll just choose the GPU. It should. I'm, I'm going to have to try that. Um, and you can also use, I think it's NVTOP as, uh, um, it looks just like HTOP, except it's looking at your, uh, GPUs and it lays it out the same way HTOP does. And that works pretty good for monitoring how well. And it shows like each thing that it's running, and it shows which card that's running it, and all that. So, little tidbit there. Um, so I downloaded Skyrim, and under Wayland, it worked. It worked swimmingly. Uh, everything just worked. No, so. I I do like hearing that, and that that makes me want to try Wayland because there are massive problems trying to run Skyrim under Xorg, or at least there was last time I did it. Because even when you can get the sound working correctly, which is jumping through a whole bunch of hoops, I still had problems where it would lock up in the first portion of the game. Mm -hmm. Like, it wouldn't leave that first scene in the back of the wagon. Yeah. Yeah, it would just get stuck there, and you'd be just traveling in that wagon for forever. What I was getting was, uh, and I didn't get past the wagon scene a year ago, um, it was... you, you could see it running, the wagon going and the stuff passing by, and you could hear the music playing, but you couldn't hear the voices. Yeah, because, that was another one. That was and, another one. you know, so I thought, okay, so where are we at on this now? And uh, the first thing I noticed, uh, when you install Skyrim and then you go and you start it, it, like, measures your GPU capability and then sets, automatically sets, you know, what 
it thinks you ought to be using. I think it's like low, mid, high, and ultra, and right away it put mine on ultra, and it never did that before either. It always chose the lowest GPU setting. Uh, that is, the interesting thing is, it did that on both my Omen running Arch, and then when I installed it on this machine that's uh, got a Ryzen 7 with the AMD graphics, the exact same thing, and the experience was perfectly well, was perfectly usable on both. And it was synced, and uh, actually I'm getting better performance here on this machine. Uh, better meaning on the Omen, I'm getting a little bit of screen tearing, which is a little irritating, but I don't know if that's got more to do with the fact that it's kind of an older, maybe not so great NVIDIA card, you know, and it's running with the highest settings or, or what that might be. Um, but it's working here on Mint 21.1 just as well, if not better than on that NVIDIA. Running on Arch, running Wayland, because you're not getting Wayland here on, uh, on Mint. So that's a, that's a happy story indeed. Um, I also installed Halo Master Chief. Again, the game ran with the highest video settings, and I, I think Master Chief always worked kind of good for me, though. Um, so, you know, at this point, those are the two games that probably, of the games that I have, they're probably the most graphic-intensive. So if those work, pretty much everything. And I'm not, again, I'm not a big gamer, but I've got this academic interest in these things working on Linux, so there you go. Um, yeah, so gaming on Linux for the win. But that's about all I've got. And that about wraps up our bi-weekly wanderings. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mintcast. If you see something that you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. Join us live on YouTube, post at the Mintcast subreddit, chat with us on Telegram, Discord, Facebook, or post directly at https colon slash slash mintcast.org. Our next episode is 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Sunday, February 5th, 2023. And there is a link to get that converted to your time zone. Thank you, Londoner. Our next roundtable live stream is 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Saturday, January 28th, 2023. And there's a link to convert that to your time zone. Live stream information is available at mintcast.org slash livestream. So wrapping it up, where can we find you, Joe? Well, I am on a couple of other podcasts. You can catch me on the Linux Link Tech Show, uh, tllts.org. You can catch me on the Linux Lugcast, linuxlugcast.com. You can send me an email directly, jb at midcast.org, or you can buy me a coffee on Kofi. Moss? I'm on Full Circle Weekly News and Distro Hoppers Digest. You can email me, bardmoss at pm.me. I'm at zyvala at hosttux.social on Mastodon, and I've got websites at itsmoss.com and peacefulhippo.info. Bill? Well, you can email me, bill at midcast.org. I'm bill underscore h on Discord. I'm at... Uh, at WCHauser3 on Twitter and WCHauser3 on Facebook. I've also got a Mastodon. I'm going to have to get that written in here. Um, at WCHauser3 at Fostodon.org. Um, and check out my other two podcasts, uh, Three Fat Truckers and Linux OTC. Linux OTC, probably more for this crowd. Um, the, le the websites will be uh, 
linked in the show notes, uh, 3ftpodcast.org and linuxotc.org. Before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mintcast possible. Audio Freak Rio for our audio editing, also with help from Bill. I think we're still using archives.org for hosting our audio files. Yeah. Hobstar for our logo, and RD for the animated Discord logo. Londoner for our time sinks. Bill for hosting the Linode, which runs our website, website maintenance, and the Nextcloud server on which we host our show notes on raw audio. And the Linux Mint development team for the fine distro we love to talk about. Thanks, Clem. Thanks, Clem. Thanks, Clem. This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter, at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com for our theme music. And thanks for listening to this episode of The Mintcast.